This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the second podcast for Chapter 2 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. And in this podcast, I'll be talking you through sections 2.5 and 2.6. These are two sections that come in between the vector operations we talked about in the first four sections and another set of vector operations which all involve the nabla, or del, upside-down triangle operator, which is a form of partial derivative. So before getting to all of those, I wanted to include a little discussion about partial derivatives themselves and how vectors can be considered to be representations of partial derivatives. Section 2.5 starts on page 35, and the discussion there starts off by pointing out that if you understand ordinary derivatives, partial derivatives are a pretty straightforward extension of that. You may have run into derivatives, ordinary derivatives that is, by, for example, taking the slope of a line or by trying to find the speed. If you know how the position of an object changes with time, you may have learned about v sub x equals dx dt. Well, partial derivatives are a pretty straightforward extension of that. It's probably worth a few minutes of your time to make sure that you're understanding ordinary derivatives before you get into partial derivatives. Remember, the nature of an ordinary derivative comes about when you have a variable such as y that depends on another variable such as x. If y depends on x, you can write that as y equals f of x, where f just means some function of x. So if I give you a new x value, you're going to get a new y value because y depends on x. The ordinary derivative of y with respect to x, which is written as dy dx, simply tells you how much y changes for an infinitesimal little change in x. To understand that, take a look at figure 2.6 on the bottom of page 36. There's a line that's supposed to represent y equals f of x, some function of x. As you move along different x values, there's different values of y. There's a little circle with a zoom in there showing between two points, the first one called x1, y1, and the second one called x2, y2. If you move from the first point to the second point, notice that both the x value and the y value change. We call the delta y the rise and the delta x the run. They're both positive in this case. You went over to the right towards increasing x and you went up towards increasing y. So delta y divided by delta x is simply the slope of that line. Now if you look carefully, you'll see it's actually not the slope of the curve, it's the little dashed line between the two points, because after all, all we've done are look at the two endpoints, we haven't taken anything from in between. But if you allow delta x to get very small, that is if you make your run infinitesimally small, the limit as delta x goes to zero, you're gonna have a tiny little change in x, which is gonna give you a tiny little change in y, and at that point, the difference between the straight line between those two points and the actual line, which may be curving, but not on this very small scale, the difference between those two lines becomes negligible. So the idea is we can get the slope by taking the rise divided by the run, provided that the run is very, very small. Now, if it's big, you get the average slope through there, but if it's very small, you get the instantaneous slope. And that's what the ordinary derivative is. When you take dy dx instead of delta y over delta x, the idea is you've taken the limit as the run goes to zero. To get from here to partial derivatives is a very small step. 
Instead of considering a one-dimensional line, as in figure 2.6, take a look on the top of page 37 at figure 2.7. Now there's a two-dimensional surface. That's called Z, where Z is the height above the XY plane. And I've written on there Z equals F of XY. It simply means the height depends on both X and Y. I showed an example. There's some value X1, some value Y1. You go up to the surface, that's the value Z1. So in this case, Z is a function not just of X, not just of Y, but of both X and Y. I think you can probably tell what's coming. The idea is if you're at any point on that surface, one slope will no longer tell you everything you might need to know. For example, look at figure 2.8, just below figure 2.7, and consider the point shown there. There's a pretty steep slope if you move in the y direction from that point. It's a negative slope, and I meant to draw the surface, so it's pretty steep right there. But if you move in the x direction, that is coming out of the page, the slope is a lot less. I actually tried to draw this as though it's completely horizontal, so the slope in that case would be almost zero. So no longer do we just have one slope to deal with, as we did in the case of the line. Now there might be different slopes in different directions. That's exactly what the partial derivative is designed to handle. If we were at some point and we wanted to say, okay, I'm going to hold one variable constant, say x, and ask how much z changes as I move only in y, not letting myself move in the x direction at all, that's the partial of z with respect to y if I do that over an infinitesimally small run of y. Likewise, I can decide to hold y constant and move only in the x direction and say, how much does z change then? That's what the partial derivative is for. And as it says in the text, it's very easy to recognize the partial derivatives because they're not written with the Roman lowercase d. They're written with the Greek lowercase delta. Sometimes people explicitly write, for example, partial of z with respect to x. Then they put a vertical line and then a y to say, specifically, holding y constant, how much does z change if I move in the x direction? or dz dy, vertical bar x, to say if I hold x constant, how much does z change if I move in y? Those are shown at the bottom of page 37. So the whole idea is we're holding one or more variables constant while we're changing one variable and saying how much does the function change as that one variable changes. So you might say, okay, but how much does z change if I move both in the x and in the y direction by some amount? That's actually pretty easy to understand as well. Take a look at equation 220 on the top of page 38. There it says dz, the change in z. Now again, since that's not a delta, that's a d, this means we're going to always be taking the limit over very small increments of the variables. But dz, the change in z, has two parts. If you're moving both a little bit in x and a little bit in y, the change in z due to your movement in x is the partial of z with respect to x times dx, how far you moved in x. But you've got to add to that, if you also moved in y, the partial of z with respect to y times dy, that is, how far you moved in y. When you add those two things together, you get the total change in z for those infinitesimal movements. So how does this actually get applied? Consider the function written out in the middle of page 38 in the sentence starting with consider a function. There's a function z that I just made up. It's a function of x and y that looks like 6x squared y plus 3x plus 5xy plus 10. 
Now, we're about to take the partial derivatives of that, but before you do, I think it's a really good idea, once in a while, to take a look at the function to see what it looks like. And that's where a tool like Mathematica or MATLAB or a variety of other programs, whatever you like, can really help. Because if you make a graph of the function, especially on the edges, it's pretty easy to see what the slope ought to be, or at least what the behavior of the slope ought to be. So I did that. On the bottom of page 38, you'll see figure 2.9. There is the exact function I talked about in that sentence. And I plotted it from x equals minus 3 to plus 3 and y equals minus 3 to plus 3. I used MATLAB to plot the three-dimensional function z. And there you can see it. What I like to do with a function like this is then to say, okay, so if I make y equals minus 3, what should the slope be doing as I move along the x direction? That is, what should the partial of z with respect to x look like when I hold y at minus 3? Or I could say, let's hold x at minus 3 and let y vary. That is, what should the partial of z with respect to y look like? And by looking at the edges of the function, you can pretty well guess what the behavior of the partials ought to be. In the case of making y equal to minus 3 and allowing x to change, we're essentially running up and then down that curve shown on the lower right part of figure 2.9. It says the slope ought to be pretty steep. If you're at y equals minus 3 and you allow x to vary from minus 3, somewhere maybe just before you get to 0, the slope ought to go to 0. And as you continue along x, the slope ought to become steeper and steeper negative. Likewise, if I hold x equals minus 3, looks like the slope is pretty constant as I move along y. So you might expect the partial of z with respect to y at x equals minus 3 to be more or less constant. So that kind of visual check can often be a very good check on the math you're about to do when you take the partial derivatives. And to do that, it's just like taking ordinary derivatives, except we're going to hold one of the variables constant. So, for example, as you can see on the top of page 39, there's the function z equals 6x squared y plus 3x plus 5xy plus 10. And if you take the partial derivative of that function, z, with respect to x, you treat y as a constant. So the first term, 6x squared y, when you take the partial of that with respect to x, the y is treated just like the 6. It comes straight through the derivative with no change. But the x squared, of course, when you take the derivative with respect to x, becomes 2x. So now you've got the 6y, which were unchanged by the derivation process, times 2x, which is 12xy. That's the first term in equation 2.21. Now the next term of the function is 3x. You take the derivative of that, 3 is a constant, it comes out. The derivative of x with respect to x is 1, you get plus 3. Next term, 5xy. Remember, the y for this partial is treated like a constant, like the 5. So the 5y come out dx dx is 1, that term is 5y. And the 10 is a constant, so the partial with respect to anything turns the 10 into a 0. So the terms that survive are 12xy plus 3 plus 5y. That's equation 221. And I think you can see you can do the same process with respect to y simply by holding x as a constant. Then the 6x squared in the first term, 6x squared y, the whole 6x squared comes right through the derivative without being changed, and you take dy dy, which is 1. So the first term is 6x squared. The second term has no y dependence, so the partial with respect to y of 3x is 0. It does not contribute. The 5xy term, we treat the 5 and the x as constant. 
They come through the derivative, dy dy is 1, the 5x contributes. The 10 does not. So equation 222 has the partial of z with respect to y. Now, I'm going to compare these to the visual assessment we did a minute ago, but first there's a little side note here that I debated long and hard about including in the book, and that is, why exactly do you bring the exponent down? If you're doing a derivative such as the derivative of x squared with respect to x, why do you write that exponent in front and subtract 1 from it? You undoubtedly saw this once when you first learned how to do derivatives. But I thought it might be useful now that you're a little farther along in your studies, which I presume you are because you're reading this book. Why do you do that? So there's a brief explanation of that. I won't spend a lot of time on this. You're welcome to skip this if you already understand this or if you don't care. But what it says there is, if you're doing dz dx, you're trying to figure out how much z changes with x. We said we do this in the limit as delta x goes to zero. We're making that run very small. And we're comparing z at the second position to z at the first position. Well, z at the second position is just z at x plus some little change in x called delta x. And in order to compare that to the z at the first position, we subtract z at x and divide by delta x. That's giving us the rise z at x plus delta x minus z of x over the run delta x in the limit as delta x goes to zero. That's equation 223. So if z is x squared, we say the derivative of x squared with respect to x is the limit as delta x goes to zero of the function x plus delta x squared minus x squared over delta x. But look at that numerator. That x plus delta x quantity squared term has an x squared and an x times delta x and another x times delta x and a delta x squared. So it's got an x squared and a 2x delta x, that is the cross term, has a factor of 2 in front of it, and then a delta x squared. And from that, we're subtracting x squared because, again, we're getting the change from the first point to the second. Well, when you subtract the x squared, the x squared term goes away, and you're left with 2x delta x plus delta x squared. You divide that by delta x, the delta x drops out from the 2x term, and one of the delta x's drops out from the delta x squared term, and you're left with 2x plus delta x. But remember, we're letting delta x approach 0, so that term becomes negligible compared to 2x. So what are we left with? We're left with 2x. That's exactly what the derivative is. We brought the 2 in front because that's the number of cross terms you get when you have x plus delta x squared. As you can imagine, if you in fact had x plus delta x cubed, if we were taking the derivative of x cubed with respect to x, there would be three cross terms. That's why the exponent comes down in front, because it counts the number of cross terms when you do this process. And the reason we subtract one from it after we move that exponent down is because we're comparing the later point to the earlier point by subtracting off the x value at the earlier point. So the highest power, x squared in this case, gets subtracted off and we're left with the power of the cross term, which is 1 less. That's why you bring the exponent in front and you subtract 1 from it. Back to equation 2.21 and 2.22. What does it mean when we say the slope in the x direction, the partial of z with respect to x, equation 2.21, is 12xy plus 3 plus 5y. 
it means that that slope depends on x and y. And if you want to know the slope at any point, you've got to put in the x and y value for that point in order to get the slope there. Likewise, the partial of z with respect to y, 6x squared plus 5x in equation 222, that's a different function, but still, if you want to know what is the value of the slope in this direction, you've got to pick an x value. So that's what those mean. Now, how do they compare to our initial estimates? Well, the discussion in the middle of page 40 should help you with that. It says, okay, if we plug in y equals minus 3 and say, what is the slope doing? You find out it's exactly what we said. It starts out steep and positive. It goes to 0 somewhere near x equals 0. Turns out it's a little negative, about x equals minus 1 third. And as you move to positive x, the slope becomes big negative. That's exactly what our visual analysis said when we looked at the edge of that function. Likewise, the next paragraph shows you what happens if x equals minus 3. In this case, there is no y dependence, so you know the slope is constant along there. And that's exactly what the equation tells you. Nobody expects you to always make a plot of the function and visually assess the slopes before you take partial derivatives. But I just think it's helpful to see that at least a few times to remind yourself what you're doing when you take those partial derivatives. Now when you learned about ordinary derivatives, you probably learned that you can also do second order or third order derivatives. That is, you can take d dx of dz dx, the change in the change in z with x. Remember, that's written d squared z dx squared. It is not the same as dz dx, the quantity squared. This is the second derivative, the change in the change in z with respect to x. You can also do that with partials. As it says in the paragraph starting with and just in the middle of page 40, the second order partial, partial with respect to x, of the partial of z with respect to x, or partial squared z with respect to the partial of x squared, tells you the change in the x direction slope as you move in x. Likewise, the partial of z with respect to y, the partial of that with respect to y, tells you the change in the y direction slope as you move in the y direction. And you can have mixed partials. That is, you can take partial with respect to x of the partial of z with respect to y, which is written partial squared z over partial x partial y. Now what does that mean? It means the change in the x slope as you move in y, or the change in the y slope as you move in x. Happily, for well-behaved functions, that is functions that are continuous and have continuous derivatives, those are the same. It doesn't matter whether you take the x partial first or the y partial first, you will get the same answer. That's actually shown on the top of page 41, where for the z function we've been using, if you take the mixed derivatives, you get 12x plus 5, no matter which one you took first. The last bit in this section has to do with something called the chain rule. That comes about when you've got a function such as z that depends on both x and y, but you consider the fact that x and y themselves may be functions of other variables. Those are usually written as u and v. So x and y both may depend on these other variables, u and v. The question here is, how much does z change if we change u or if we change v? And as you might expect, partial derivatives are really handy for doing this. Look at equations 225 and 226, the top of page 41. It says the partial of z with respect to u is simply 
the partial of z with respect to x, that is, how much will z change if I'm moving in x, times the partial of x with respect to u. How much does x change if I move in u? When you multiply those together, that gives you the change in z for a change in u due to the change in x. But if I change u, I may also be changing y. Because we said both x and y may depend on both u and v. So in addition to taking partial of z with respect to x and multiplying it by partial of x with respect to u, I've got to also add in the partial of z with respect to y times the partial of y with respect to u. Because if u changes, it may affect both x and y. And changing x and y is going to change z. What if v changes? Well, if V changes, it may change X, it may change Y, so we've got to account for both of those. That's equation 226. It says partial of Z with respect to V is partial of Z with respect to X, the change in Z due to a change in X, multiplied by how much X changed due to that change in V. And then you've got to add to that the partial of Z with respect to Y multiplied by the change in Y with respect to V. Because once again, both X and Y may have changed when U and V changed. So that's called the chain rule, and that's going to play an important role when we get deeper into vectors and tensors. Section 2.6, beginning on page 41, is called Vectors as Derivatives, and it expands on the concept discussed at the end of Chapter 1, which said there's a correspondence between basis vectors and partial derivatives. This is going to go a little farther in that direction by introducing something called the directional derivatives. To understand how this works, I think it's helpful to picture a path such as that shown on the top of page 42 in figure 210. The idea here is this. You're moving along that curve, and as you move along, let's say you keep track of time, and you mark where t equals 1, and t equals 2, and t equals 3. The process you're doing is called parameterizing the curve. That is, you're assigning the parameter t to various points on the curve. And of course, if you're speeding up and slowing down, those don't have to be equally spaced. But you are essentially defining locations on the curve with your parameter t. Now, also visualize this. Let's say in the region of the xy plane that we're looking at here, the air temperature is different at different locations. I'm not saying that it's changing with time. If you stay at the same place, the air temperature stays the same wherever you are. But the air temperature may be different at different locations. So what do you see as you move along the curve? Clearly, as you move from the position t equals 1 to t equals 2 to t equals 3 and so on, you're going to go from the region of one air temperature to the region of different air temperature. So therefore, you can effectively make a graph of air temperature versus time, even though the air temperature is only changing with time because you're moving with time, your position is changing with time, and you're taking yourself into new regions. So what does this have to do with partial derivatives? Well, if we say the air temperature is a function of x and y, we'll write it as f of xy, as is done in the middle of page 42. Then you can say that the change in air temperature with your parameter time, df dt, as written in equation 227, is made up of two terms. One is dx dt, that is how much you changed your x position with time, times the change in air temperature with x, partial of f with respect to x. But that's not the only potential change. You may have moved in y also. 
So you've got to add dy dt, that is how much your y position changed with time, times the partial of f with respect to y. This is essentially the chain rule applied to what we're now going to call a directional derivative, df dt. What it says is that the directional derivative of the function f is the rate of change of the x-coordinate, that's the dx dt part, times the partial of f with respect to x, plus the rate of change of the y-coordinate, the dy dt term, times the partial of f with respect to y, the change in the air temperature in that direction. Combining those through the chain rule, as in equation 227, gives you the directional derivative df dt. But you can make an interesting correlation with this by realizing that dx dt, the change in your x position with time, is just the x component of your velocity. And dy dt is the y component of your velocity. And as you move along a curve, you know that the velocity is a vector that is always tangent to the path on which you're moving. So therefore, our directional derivative, df dt, begins to look like something that has components, vx and vy, and basis vectors that are the partial with respect to x and the partial with respect to y. Because this applies to any function f, not just the air temperature. As a matter of fact, you don't need any function at all in there to see how this works. Look at equation 228. Here the function itself has been removed. This is an operator equation. It's an equation waiting for a function to come along, which will be dropped in front of the d and in front of the partials in each of those two terms on the right once the function is defined. But you can say that this operator equation is a vector equation, just like the word vector equation written a few lines below that, where it says any vector is an x component, in this case dx dt, times an x basis vector, in this case partial with respect to x, plus a y component, dy dt, times a y basis vector, partial with respect to y. So the reason I include this here is to reinforce with you the idea that partial derivatives can be looked at as the basis vectors along the coordinate axes, and those play a very important role when taking a directional derivative, such as ddt in equation 228. And of course, it doesn't have to be air temperature. This could represent any function that varies spatially in the region in which my path is drawn. Likewise, I didn't have to parameterize this with t. I could have kept track of anything along that path. A lot of people use lambda or s when they're parameterizing a curve. But this same general development dealing with directional derivatives and partial derivatives as basis vectors still applies. So if you're going on to the tensors part of the book, file this away. This will be useful knowledge for you when you come to that. Okay, the rest of the sections of this chapter deal with NABLA or the DEL operator as it's called and how to use it in applications such as gradient, divergence, curl, and Laplacian, all of which are the subject of the next podcast.